And I said, well, hi, I'm Dave Crumpy. He says, hi, I'm Andreas Grunzig. And I said, would you mind if I worked with you? He says, no, come ahead. I decided to do a poster on balloon angioplasty at the uh, RSNA meeting. Rosemary and I had translated his PhD thesis. I had all his data, and that was the first uh, introduction of balloon angioplasty to American radiologists. It got no attention, of course. I, I didn't tell Andreas I'd done that. Somebody told Andreas a couple of months later, that was a nice exhibit you had at RSNA. He said, what? His very first question, he says, who was first? So I had him listed as first author, and so he was, he was satisfied, which became important later. I would get this retrotracheal ache. You know, the pain just got worse and worse. It went down my arm and centered over my wrist. Obviously, I needed a cast. The only person I wanted to touch in that catheter, I wanted Grinsley because he was better at getting out of trouble than anybody I ever saw. That day then, after the emergency was finished, popped it open, it's been fine ever since. I think later what I point out to the residents and fellows is don't ever, ever, ever take credit for somebody else's work. Because suppose I put my name first on that poster, <laughs> and now I needed him to save my life. Welcome to the Sound of IR podcast, an SIR RFS initiative. I'm Sabash Goody. And I'm Steve Lazar. And we're your producers for this podcast. We hope to deliver impactful insight into the field while inspiring the next generation of interventional radiologists. This episode is part of our VIR Legend series, where you'll be hearing from some of the founders of IR. I'm your host, Eric Cyphers, third-year med student and project lead for the Legend series. In this episode, I had the honor to speak with Dr. David Cumpy at Western Angio on the Big Island of Hawaii. Dr. Cumpy was the director of IR at the University of Colorado from 1978 to 2005. He helped introduce balloon angioplasty in the United States, and he participated in the birth of neuro-IR. So I'd like to start by asking, uh, how did you come upon radiology, and was IR even an option at that time? Well, uh, no. Uh, you, you are influenced by your mentors, uh, by your teachers, and uh, I was always going to be a surgeon. I discovered I was not very fond of internal medicine <laughs> or internal medicine residents, uh, and, and I did like the surgeons, so that's what I was going to do. And then there was a lady named Lucy Frank Squire who came up from New York uh, once every week or two uh, to teach Harvard medical students uh, and teach them radiology. She had trained at the Mass General. So she was just an outstanding, fabulous teacher. Through her, I got really interested in radiology. I was really on the fence, and so I asked if I couldn't take her to dinner. And she was cool enough to let me take her to dinner. Mm -hmm. And we went to some place in Boston. And so I just sort of poured out my heart and said, you know, I always wanted to be a surgeon, but now I really like radiology, and, and I, I just don't know. What should I do? And she just looked me straight in the eye and said, I can't tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's for you. And at that time, Vietnam was in full swing, and all doctors were being drafted. So if you didn't want to go in as a general medical officer, you had to commit to some specialty in your, I think it was the fourth year of medical school. There was the um, Berry Plan for the Army and the Cord Plan for the Navy. The Public Health Service was in the Navy. I knew about NIH. I applied for a Cord deferment and applied 
to NIH. Now this was at the clinical center, which was at the time the world's largest brick building, but you were reading uh, all the diagnostic studies on their patients uh, that, that were brought in for specialized diseases that they were studying. For some reason, I got the job. And that was one of the outstanding times in my career. The, there were four of us every year, and uh, it was quite competitive. So you can imagine all these others were very, very sharp. The second year I was there, John Dopman came back uh, from San Diego to become chief at NIH. He was one of the early giants, did all the venous sampling studies. He uh, spinal arteriography, did some early spinal embolizations and other interventional procedures, and, being, and was an outstanding diagnostic radiologist. And of all the people from both years, uh, I was the only one interested in angiography, so I had pretty much John to myself for the whole year to teach me. And he was my first important angiography mentor. Uh, my training in uh, <laughs> angiography uh, during my residency was uh, kind of embarrassing. I had done one angiogram, one, with some staff assistants. And the second angiogram was a 23-year-old female and the question was whether or not she had an aberrant right subclavian artery, so she needed a thoracic aorta. And I was the staff person. And the uh, guy I was helping had never done an angiogram. And we put the catheter in and did the aortogram. It showed the uh, aberrant subclavian. And we pulled out, and everything was fine. Now, what could have possibly gone wrong with that? So you were so, tra training somebody with one under your belt? With one under my belt, you know, C1. <laughs> I even skipped the step of uh, see one, I guess, and just do one and then uh, teach one. But fortunately, she survived. So my training in angio was really poor until I got to NIH. My wife was my physics teacher in residency. She was uh, in charge of getting us through the physics part of the boards. And she's from Germany. When we uh, started dating and then got married, uh, just before we left for NIH, I wanted to learned to speak to her half of the family. I speak Spanish, but not German at that time. So we decided maybe the best thing to do would be uh, to go to Europe to some German-speaking teaching hospital where I would work for a year and do procedures uh, because the thing I was interested in was cerebral arteriography. I, I, I felt my, and other neuro procedures, I felt my neuro training was really quite weak. The best book at the time was by Kreienbull and Yashagil, and at that time, uh, Yashagil was the chair of neurosurgery. Uh, Kreienbull was now the retired chair, and Yashagil, by pretty much everybody's measure, was the best neurosurgeon on the planet, uh, and his thing was vascular neurosurgery. Now, I was over there for that year to do diagnostic studies on all his patients. Uh, there wasn't any interventional at that time, of course. He was a... Uh, high and mighty August, you know, so many people fawning all over him. And, and whenever he'd go down the hall, he had an entourage of maybe 20 people wow. following him. I eventually managed to uh, catch his attention. One time was uh, when I got there, uh, everything was being done by direct puncture uh, because that's the way he had been trained. And, and among other things, before the crime bull really treated him badly, he put him in a lab for 10 or 15 years 
and otherwise had him doing diagnostic radiology studies. And just for the trainees listening, do you mean a direct carotid puncture? To direct do? carotid puncture, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for uh, vertebral studies, they had experimented with direct vertebral puncture and had wow. even developed a special needle for that with a side hole, but decided that just wasn't a good idea. So a vertebral study was done by uh, what was called a retrobrachialis lynx, so, or rechts. So that's a right or left retrobrachial, where you would stick the brachial artery uh, retrograde with a fairly large needle and then inject contrast at, uh, I can't remember, somewhere between 15 and about 22 cc's a second. Wow. And uh, I think 50 cc's or so. And so contrast would reflux back up the subclavian, uh, fill the vertebral, and then you'd film over the head. And that's how they did... um, uh, vertebral arteriography, and the uh, workup for a uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, now they didn't have a CT scan, there was only one in all of Switzerland in 75, and that drove Yasha Gill nuts, it was in Basel. So the workup for somebody who'd had a subarachnoid bleed by uh, lumbar puncture was to bring him down the first day, put him in anesthesia, right carotid stick. If that's negative, left carotid stick. If that's negative, pull them both out, get hemostasis, and wake the patient up, send them upstairs. Bring them down the next day, put them in anesthesia again, retrobrachial on the left side, and that was negative, retrobrachial on the right. And I am not making this up, that's what was. And I somehow managed to start doing some catheter procedures, mm-hmm. which were much better. And so I accumulated a, a number of patients who'd had both on the same patient, uh, a catheter study and a retrobrachial study. So I had about seven or eight cases. And uh, Yashigel was uh, tooling down the hall one day with his entourage, and I ambushed him. And I said, uh, uh, Professor, can I show you something here? <laughs> so, uh, okay, so he stopped. And so I just handed him two films. And I said, retrobrachial, catheter. Held him up to the light them down. I had the next two ready. I said, retrobrachial, catheter. And I handed him about six of those, and he didn't say anything. He just looked them up the light, and then would take the next ones. Mm-hmm. He didn't say anything. Uh, but then he just went on his way. Now, there was some kind of a blow-up with the radiology department, and so Yasher Gale, for the, the requisitions for any study that was called a Zettel, uh, would have to, the, the fellows would fill them out, but then Yashagil would have to uh, put his little initial on it to say that's what he had wanted and approved, and there'd be this little YA on the, on the settle somewhere. And uh, so sometime after that, uh, not very long, a uh, fellow had filled this out that this patient was to have a retrobrachialis lynx. That had been in the man's own hand, had been crossed out, and uh, he, he wrote basically, do it any way you want, <laughs> YA. So, uh, and he acknowledged that later, that uh, I was the one that changed them over to catheter studies. And then uh, there was another time where, oh, and they charged by the film. So, Yashiko oh, used to... Analog um, films at that time. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. These were, these were just, just pieces of film in a changer. And the... Uh, uh, the charge was per film. So Yashagil used to bitch always because there were too many films that were being <laughs> taken. And so there was a uh, patient one day that uh, some kid with a um, aneurysm of the 
low or mid Basler, I can't remember which. And uh, he wanted this worked up. So I had done a posterior fossa study and I wanted to do carotids, but I thought, well, I better check with the man. So I went up to the OR carrying uh, these films and he had an operating microscope and then uh, the operations were televised. And so I went up there quite, quite frequently to watch him operate. So he's operating away and somebody says, Dr. Cumpy's here. So uh, he doesn't look up, he says, yeah, what do you want? And uh, so I said, well, professor, uh, I've got the pictures of the aneurysm in the posterior fossa, but do you want the carotids? Uh, and he says, uh, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, if you're going to trap it, you really want to know how good the posterior communicating arteries are so that uh, to perfuse the basilar tip, if you're going to, and trapping it's just putting a clip on either side of it. And I still see this to this day. He's operating like this, and he stopped and had this stunned <laughs> look on his face as he looked at me. Then went back and said, nah, go ahead, do it. Uh, but uh, he wasn't used to radiologists thinking about how this patient's going to be managed. So I think in the end, he had some respect for me. <laughs> but one day I was, uh, between cases, I had two rooms where I was doing stuff. And uh, there, I, it was between cases, so I was just walking down the hall in this giant hall uh, with the rooms off to each side, and there was one angio room, so uh, as I was walking by it, I saw a catheter down the lake. I'd never seen an angioplasty, I knew it had to be one, there was no other reason to do that. So I walked in, said, uh, you mind if I watch? And uh, he says, no. So there's a shortly less frame occlusion, and the wire goes down, and the catheter, yeah, I understand that, and I'm waiting for the bougie catheter to come down, the large one, but no, a balloon goes up. Oh, I didn't know they were using balloons now. Uh, and it turned out that was the only place in the world it was. And then, uh, uh, and then he pulled the catheter back and uh, squirted, and this shortly less femme occlusion was now wide open, good flow. And uh, so he's taking off his gloves, and I said, gee, that's really cool. Hi, I'm Dave Cumpy. He says, hi, I'm Andreas Grunzig. And I said, you know, I've just gotten here. I'm going to be here for a year, and I'd love to learn angioplasty. I've never been in a place that did any. And would you mind if I worked with you? And he says, no, come ahead. And at that time, he was a total unknown. So I'm the only American that worked with him uh, during that period. For the uh, trainees, can you uh, tell us a little bit about an introduction to who Dr. Grunzig is and what Yeah, well, Grunzig was actually not a cardiologist. Grunzig ultimately developed coronary angioplasty and changed the course of medicine, uh, as he did in, in even peripheral with balloon angioplasty. But he had trained in internal medicine and he had some training in public health. And when he came to the Kantonspital, it was with the idea, he knew that he wanted to treat coronary disease, but uh, the technology just wasn't there. And uh, so he started working on it. Everybody knew you needed a balloon, but nobody had been able to make one. The Porstman caged corset balloon catheter was the best thing out there. And from, I've never used one. I understand it was terribly thrombogenic and just very difficult to use. So that was probably not a, a good viable alternative. Well, he went over to the ETH, which is the Switzerland MIT, ETH, uh, and uh, went over there and said, who knows about plastics here? And they say, oh, you want Hopf down at the end of the hole there. Uh, and so he goes to see Hopf. And Hopf says, you want PVC? Grinzik says, what's that? He says, 
polymonochloride, you're gonna love it. So, um, now Grunzig knew nothing about catheters or plastics, but PVC has the property that when you heat it up, it shrinks. And so Grunzig went back and started working on this idea uh, with his tech Maria Schlumpf, and they would just work on the kitchen table at night. They went through more than 100 prototypes before they finally came up with something that worked. And what it was, was uh, they found a way, uh, somewhat that was able to carve a groove down the outside of a standard angiographic catheter without creating any, uh, uh, it didn't, didn't communicate with the inner lumen. And then uh, they took a, a sleeve of polyvinyl chloride and put it over that. Uh, and then uh, used a heat gun, i.e. a hairdryer, to shrink the PVC down on the catheter everywhere but where the balloon was. And so up the whole length of the shaft. And then they figured out a way to do a Y connector at the proximal end so that the side uh, port, when you injected it, the contrast or fluid would go down the outside groove and inflate the balloon. They glued the tip. Grunsick said, that was hard. <laughs> and uh, and uh, cockamamie as that was, the damn thing worked. He started doing cases. Now he needed balloons, but at that time he hadn't been able to find anybody to make them. So that year, 1975, was the year of Walter Schlumpf. Now, Walter is Maria's husband. He, uh, I think as an engineer, was. And he uh, had nothing to do with medicine. Grunzig taught him how to, the technique of making the balloon, Walter would come home from his day job, make these things at night, we'd throw them in Cydex, and a couple days later, throw them, put them into patients. And, and they worked. They were, so you, they were terrible, they had terrible tips. They were harder than hell to get into an artery. You made but, these yourselves? Uh, well, no, Walter did. And that year that we did, I scrubbed with Grunzig on, oh, 50 to 70 cases. And all of the balloons that we used were uh, from Walter Schlumpf, handmade by him. And there was one other guy that was working, a doc, working with him, Felix Mahler. And we were the two who were the only docs working with him in that period. He went on to develop, finally, a workable coronary system, mini balloon, uh, that could be used, and uh, a guiding outer guiding catheter to put it into one of the coronaries. And then eventually did the first coronary angioplasty on Adolf Bachmann in September 16th of 1977 and as soon as he reported that he was instantly world famous and uh it, it was an entirely different time but in 75 no way had heard of this guy uh now we got back in early 76 and i decided to do a poster on balloon angioplasty at the uh, rsna meeting Rosemary and I had translated his Habilitation, which is kind of like a PhD thesis that you have to write and then have approved by a committee of three in order to become a faculty member uh, in uh, Switzerland or in Germany. And so Rosemary and I had translated this into English for him. Uh, she translated it from German and I translated it into medical ease. He, uh, he wanted to publish this in English. Unfortunately, that never happened. I had all this data, so for 76 RSNA, I decided to talk about balloon angioplasty. At the time, the series was 140-some femoral popliteal PTAs, something like 52 iliac PTAs, and I thought the 52 was a pathetic number, showing how stupid I was, 
And so I only talk about femoral popliteal, <laughs> but it was really about balloon angioplasty, and that was the first uh, introduction of balloon angioplasty to American radiologists. It got no attention, of course. I, I didn't tell Andreas I'd done that. And this is one of the things I tell the young trainees. Somebody told Andreas a couple of months later, that was a nice exhibit you had at RSNA. He says, what? He says, oh yeah, yeah you and uh, Mahler and Kumpi. Uh, his very first question, because he was very jealous of his work because people were already trying to steal it. He says, who was first? And, uh, you know, the usual rule when you do something like that is the person does the work as the first author, but that was all Andreas's work, and I wasn't about to do that. So I had him listed as first author, and uh, then uh, me and then Felix. And so he was, he was satisfied. Now, Grinsick was kind of a difficult person, and we knocked heads a lot when I was over there. But gradually, uh, and particularly with that episode, he realized I was, I was straight and uh, I was okay. Which became important later because uh, in 82 or 83, uh, I'd run one marathon and had gotten a plantar fasciitis that lasted about 18 months. I couldn't play basketball. So um, I took up biking and I decided to try some bicycle, bicycle racing and I had this trainer set up in our garage. It'd be about 35 degrees when I'd go out there in January and February and just start cranking. Uh, and I would get this retrotracheal ache. And uh, the first time it happened, I thought, geez, if I didn't know any better, um, uh, I'd say that was angina, but couldn't possibly be that. How old were you at that time? I was 41. Okay. And I, uh, I was extremely fit. And I, my cholesterol was fine. There was no family history. I never smoked. Uh, my lipids were okay. I didn't have diabetes. And uh, it made no sense. So I just let it go. And uh, I, it went on intermittently. It didn't happen every time uh, for several months until I finally decided, well, maybe I ought to get a uh, treadmill. Probably the dumbest thing I did was go out and do Deer Creek uh, Canyon one day, and that's the, the steepest pull around our house. And it was about, it's about a sustained, probably close to an hour uh, or 45 minutes in the climb, but about a half an hour to get over there. And I went out on a March day, it was about 50, 55. And in retrospect, my engine had started before I got out of our neighborhood and all the way over to the base of the hill. And then I was just climbing the hill. The pain just got worse and worse. And it really hurt. That was the worst pain that I had during the whole time. And it went down my arm and centered over my wrist. And uh, I was you know just thinking, going on. Uh, gee, you know, I wish that would stop. You know, that's just, I didn't get off the bike and roll on the ground, but it was, it was, it was really hurting. So I got to the top and it stopped. Uh, and uh, when eventually I did have get a treadmill, it was four plus positive. Uh, I was thinking, gee, that must indicate that I've got great collaterals. Mm -hmm. But when the engine was finally done, my collaterals turned out to be lousy. The only person I wanted to touch in that catheter, obviously I needed a cath, and I was hoping I could have an angioplasty. The only I wanted Grinsick because he was better at getting out of trouble than anybody I ever saw. I, I arranged to get down to Emory. He did the angio. Now at that time, it wasn't fine to fix it. He would do the angio and think about it for a day or so and then come back and do the angioplasty. And I had a, an isolated single 
solitary 87% narrowing of my LAD, which corresponds to a 98% cross-sectional narrowing. The Widowmaker, right? And it's called a Widowmaker. I didn't know that at the time either. And that was it. So I was a candidate with basically the same lesion that Olaf Bachmann had. And so, uh, and by this time he was over at Emory. He had left uh, Switzerland. So uh, the day he was going to do it, uh, Rosemary was there and she knew him too. And the three of us knew one another. And then at the time it was scheduled, there suddenly was an emergency come in. And so we were sitting off on a, in a side room there waiting. So it was just the three of us. I was just, Andreas, why me? Uh, what? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. And he said, it's the arterial flu. I said, what? He says, it's the arterial flu. Andreas, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and he said, the factors that, that we talk about, you know, diabetes, hypertension, uh, lipids, family history, and so on. Uh, he says, those aren't the cause. Those are the exacerbating factors. The cause is the arterial flu. And you had the arterial flu. We just don't know what it is yet. So he had some ideas about the pathology. But all that stuff came along later about atherosclerosis starting out as inflammation and then deposition of stuff and then uh, uh, lipid plaques get, or get, lipid gets deposited and you form a plaque. Uh, but that, that, he was so far ahead of his time and all that. That day then after the emergency was finished, popped it open, it's been fine ever since. And I've had a couple of checkups. I think later what I point out to the residents and fellows is don't ever, ever, ever take credit for somebody else's work. Because suppose I put my name first on that poster. <laughs> and now, uh, that's what, seven years later or so, I needed him to save my life. How, would, how do you think that would have gone? That's very good uh, advice. So that's, that's as good an example I know of why uh, you, you play it straight and down the middle and, 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 and be a straight arrow about it. I went to, or came back to the U.S. and uh, we were at the University of Maryland at the time because that's where Rosemary was working while I was at NIH uh, with the idea that I, I, we, we were going to leave and go to the mountains if we could. Within a year, I got a job offer at the University of Colorado and glommed onto that. And Colorado was a real backwater when I got there. Their angio was terrible. I would do something fancy I'd learned at NIH, a spinal arteriogram or parathyroid vein sampling or arteriography or something. And they'd say, oh, that's wonderful. We never saw anything like that. And then I'd do a selective renal arteriogram and they'd say, oh, that's wonderful. We never saw anything like that. So it was a great place to uh, start out. The, one of the vascular surgeons was a classmate of mine from medical school. And the other was uh, Bob Rutherford, a senior vascular surgeon who'd done enough surgery. And he was interested in seeing how angioplasty could contribute. So they both sent me cases. Is he and, Rutherford of the classification system? Yes, uh -huh, yeah. He was at the time one of the better known vascular surgeons in the US. And I had an offer to go back to the uh, Mass General uh, after NIH, but both Rosemary and I decided we just, we didn't want to raise kids in Boston. Now, Bob was running all these national courses, Bob Rutherford, and so he would have about five or so guest faculty, and these guys were the creme de la creme of American and not infrequently international vascular surgery. And here I am, this junior kid, but I had this new toy, and Bob wanted to put that out there. So all of a sudden, I'm here with these august professors as a junior kid. I mean, Bob just threw me into deep water, and I learned to swim. 
but Bob was very helpful in uh, getting my career started and uh, my gaining credibility, and therefore I are gaining credibility with these very influential vascular surgeons from around the country. So he was very important in all of this. Uh, I had a much easier time getting things started at Colorado than many of my colleagues because uh, once the surgeons, other specialties saw that I could do what I said I could do, they started coming around with this problem or that problem. And I started doing all kinds of stuff and interventional just, just grew. Because I was the first person in Colorado when I got there to say, this is what I want to do for a living. I don't want to read x-rays. Uh, I got to spearhead the development of IR, not only at our hospital, but uh, around the whole Rocky Mountain region. We were the leaders in uh, IR for quite a while because, uh, because of that. And then in uh, 88, I treated our first stroke. At that time, there were only four strokes reported from the U.S. That morning I came in, I heard myself being paged overhead just as I got to the department. Uh, Dr. Company, Dr. Company, please come back to Angio. So I go back and there's this long line of cerebral arteriography and this is a 34-year-old guy who'd been whapped up the left side of the neck in a bar fight and he'd gone hemiplegic and aphasic. And this uh, set of angios showed a uh, mostly occlusive but not entirely occlusive plug a clot at the M1, M2 junction in the middle cerebral artery. The chief of vascular of, of neurosurgery was there, who was an aggressive guy, and he told the neuroradiologist, he says, you, you know, Glenn Kent, he said, you know, this guy's gonna do bad. You guys ought to put some neurokinase up there. And he said, ooh, ooh, we don't do that. Call Cumpy, he'll do anything. So <laughs> hence the call to come back to Angio. And so I knew a little bit about strokes being treated at that time. There had been, I think, about 20 cases reported worldwide. Glenn said, you ought to put some neurokinase up there. I said, I don't know. I never put neurokinase in anybody's head before. He said, this guy's going to do real bad. Didn't have microcatheters. I said, okay, I'll give it a whack. And so I just left the catheter in the neck. And fortunately, because it wasn't totally occlusive, the neurokinase would go through. And uh, I had no idea the dose, so I just used a standard dose, guess starting at 250,000 uh, units per hour. This is still one of the most dramatic things in my whole career. They, they had been in on the right side, of course, and it was a left carotid, so uh, his right side is paralyzed. And after infusing this for about 50 minutes, and I'm sweating bullets and thoroughly wishing I'd worn my brown underpants, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I could feel his hand begin to move That's under incredible. the drape. Whoa! And uh, by an hour of infusion, he had a normal strength grip. He couldn't snap his fingers. That was That's a little more complex function. He went on to make a complete recovery. Uh, and man, was that heady. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, Grant Hashima came to town uh, from UCSF and talked about current state of neurointerventional and he was there at the Colorado Radiologic Society showing all kinds of cases. And I had no clue about that. I just hadn't heard about this. And I was a smart-ass young guy at that time. I knew everything. And this guy's showing a bunch of stuff I never heard of. And I just, holy shit, I got I to learn about this. 
So I went out to Grants to just watch cases for two weeks and decided, yeah, I really want to do this stuff. Uh, now, Grant wanted me to, I was going to arrange a sabbatical, but Grant wanted me to come for two years. And I told him, Grant, look, I'm a full professor. I, uh, I'm running this section. I just don't have that kind of time. Uh, I, I just can't do that. Alex Berenstein at NYU was willing to take me for six months. And so I went to NYU for six months and just watch all Alex's cases. He was another very advanced neurointerventionalist. Came back and started very slowly, but uh, gradually uh, got a little bit more confidence in doing neural procedures. And these things are really scary, uh, you know, because uh, it just, I mean, <laughs> it's the, the magnitude of risk is up in order of 10 or more uh, compared with uh, body IR. And the equipment must and, have been so different at that well, time. Well, yeah, it was, it was not as fancy as now. They were the first generation microcatheters, and then we didn't have any coils initially, and, and so on. He's still uh, the head of neurocritical uh, care, Bob Newman, who is just a real down-to-earth, just a fantastic guy. And he asked me one day, well, how long did it take you to start to feel comfortable uh, with doing neuroprocedures? And I thought for a minute, and I had a lot of experience when I started this, and I said, um, I think about seven years. And he said, well, that's about how long it took me, <laughs> you know. But eventually I got uh, more comfortable doing neuro stuff. The neuro service got busier and busier. And like I say, I was very careful not to tackle anything I didn't think I could handle. I was still doing body, but um, I was just getting busier and busier in neuro. I had several people in body by that point, and I was really enthralled with neuro. One day, I just told the guys, hey, um, look, I, I just I can't do both anymore. I'm, I'm going to have to pull myself off the body schedule. I did that, and from then on, I was pretty much pure neuro, and that was about the last 20, 22 years of my career. I discovered, incidentally, that after about seven or eight years, I couldn't do body IR anymore. Uh, now, I was one of the original examiners for the CAQ, uh, and I, I was one of the people who helped start it as an organized specialty, but uh, it changes, the widgets changed so fast, and I knew the diseases, but I didn't know the widgets anymore. And you're still so, examining. And so I, uh, I just said, well, I'll, I'll just stay in neuro. Now, I also figured that uh, if I tried to do all neuro plus the, the really cool body stuff, the stent grafts and so on, that somebody on the body team would shoot me. You know, so I just decided, nah, <laughs> I'll stay in neuro. Um, how was neuro IR initially accepted across the U.S., and especially how did radiologists feel about it, and how did neurosurgeons feel about it? Neurosurgeons were pretty skeptical at the beginning, particularly with aneurysms. And the uh, type of aneurysms we could treat were pretty specialized. Uh, the balloon on a, a, a bubble balloon on a uh, artery and not uh, wide-necked and narrow-necked and so on. And <laughs> those aneurysms almost don't exist. <laughs> so there was very limited acceptance. Then the tools got better and we got better and more experienced both with um, peripheral vascular IR and uh, with neuro. What we could do uh, initially was very little, but with improved technology, 
we could do more and more and more. And eventually, it became clear to both the vascular neurosurgeons and vascular surgeons that they had to learn this stuff because it was going to, their, their specialty would otherwise disappear. This was all going to be going catheter. And so um, you heard Tom Sauce's lecture today about how uh, they're taking away our procedures. I don't look at it that way at all. We took their procedures. They realized that uh, if they wanted to keep their specialty at all, they had to start doing it. So, uh, and they started learning. And unfortunately, body IRs were pretty resistant about training surgeons. And so a lot of the early, they, they, they were self-taught and uh, some of the results were pretty uh, not so hotsy totsy. Uh, I, I didn't think that way uh, from the beginning. I always said, I'll teach a dermatologist to do this stuff. Uh, the only, there's only one requirement that you have to do it as well as I do. And I don't care what specialty it is. We made it, IRs made it difficult for uh, other surgeons to get back into it. At the same time, like I say, it was obviously inevitable. Uh, and I'm much more in favor of uh, cooperation. I mean, you heard that thing that Frank Faschini was talking about today and Sean Tutton. I think you get better medicine when you have a multidisciplinary group and everybody brings their particular expertise to an individual patient. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, it's the almighty dollar and uh, people try to grab as many cases as they can and they want to do all the billing for it. And it's just a shame, but that's what it is, you know. But uh, I don't think that's the best medicine. Uh, for the, maybe for the preclinical students who don't know, maybe the most commonly sold catheter in IR is, is the Cumpy. Uh, so I have to ask, how did that come about? Okay, when I first got to Colorado and started doing angioplasties there, most of them were in the superficial femoral artery. And at the time, we didn't have good catheters that we would go up and over like uh, we do uh, today from the contralateral groin or that sort of thing. So we did downhill sticks. When you stick the common femoral from uh, the uh, cranial side, uh, and so the, the needle is pointing down. Uh, when you look at the common femoral artery, it's sort of parallel to the body, and then the superficial femoral comes off more superficially, and the profunda goes off deep. So uh, the needle is pointing down, and we didn't have good wires, and so invariably the stupid wire would go down the profunda, and it was really hard to get into the superficial femoral. And I just wanted something that, and you used to have to dink for a long time, uh, right at the groin there to finally get the wire down the SFEM. So I just wanted something, I, I could just shove it into the profunda and then pull the wire and give little squirts of contrast while I pulled the catheter back, pointing it up. And then when I saw the SFEM, just put the wire down there, holding the catheter and pointing it down there. And so that's what it was intended for. Uh, it turned out the catheter had incredible torque control because it was so short. And uh, I was talking to the guy at the VA one day, and he said, you know, this is good for a lot of other stuff, too. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, it's good for livers and kidneys and iliacs and all sorts of stuff. And I said, okay, I'll try it. It was a surprise, but it sure was. It was a great catheter for all that. One of my early fellows was Marshall Hicks, who now is at MD Anderson in a very high muckety-muck down there. Uh, he was president of uh, SIR at one point. 
His first job was with Dan Pikus at Malincrot. Marshall took the catheter along. Dan liked the catheter. And so he would stand up at these national meetings that he was running and just hold up the catheter and say, hey, this is a great catheter. You guys ought to try it. And so it just, the word about it just sort of spread gradually by uh, word of mouth. Uh, there wasn't any campaign or anything. And like uh, was said over there earlier today, eventually one of the cook guys told me that it, it had become the biggest selling catheter in the world, <laughs> as well as the fact that just about nobody pronounces Cumpy correctly, or at least the way that my family pronounces it. How K-U-M-P-E, should we say it? K-U-M-P-E, but it comes out crump or kumpe or kump or anything but Cumpy. Uh, but because that catheter is so popular, Interventionists all over the world know how to pronounce the, my name. <laughs> so that was one benefit. Um, and just lastly, what advice do you have for students uh, who are interested in IR? It's in flux, and I don't, it, it is arguably one of the greatest fields in medicine. It is so much fun and so interesting. And IRs have always uh, had a lot of ingenuity and uh, practicing uh, all kinds of new procedures. At the same time, it's come from diagnostic radiology. And at this point, to me, diagnostic radiology is kind of an anchor around the neck. Way back when I started, I'll talk about this tomorrow, my residency was 68 to 71. And at that time, the idea was, hey, it's all x-rays. So my residency was two years of diagnosis and one year of radiotherapy. And right after that, by that time, it was very clear radiotherapy was an entirely different sport. So right after my year, or maybe one more, I don't remember which, they stopped that. And it became just diagnostic radiology or radiotherapy. IR has evolved to the point where it's at least as far away uh, from diagnostic as radiotherapy was at the time. Training paradigms are changing. Uh, I don't see any reason whatsoever that you need to train for three or four years in diagnostic radiology before getting to doing interventional. This is a clinical specialty and you need to learn clinical care and be able to uh, learn how to set up a practice that you go out and commit, you're a surgeon, and go out and um, establish a practice in the midst of other surgeons as a primary referring, or a doctor be primarily referred to. There are any number of practices out there of IRs who have successfully established a, uh, a single practice or a uh, group practice uh, or a multidisciplinary thing. Not infrequently, a surgical group will hire some interventionalists, but it goes the other way too. There are some interventional groups that uh, also hire surgeons. But I think Something like that is the future. And uh, I, I think imaging helps, but um, you really need the clinical training. So I would, uh, you need to understand uh, cross-sectional anatomy, depicted through CT and MR both, but that doesn't take four years. Uh, you need to understand fluoroscopy and how to decrease dose to the patient and also to yourself. There's very little fluoroscopy that's done in diagnostic radiology these days, so you don't get trained in that. I think right now the, the best way is to uh, probably go into the uh, 
I, I can't remember the three types or four types of training, but the ones start right out training and interventional, uh, and then uh, get as much clinical training as possible. And something I really like is going to other institutions. You know, you get enthralled with all the people in your home institution, and that's well and fine, but that gets a little inbred, and, and it's much better to go to at least some other hospitals, preferably in a different area of the country, and actually maybe preferably some really high-powered hospital overseas. Uh, and I've seen a lot of these now in uh, Asia and Korea and China, uh, as well as uh, the Canton Spital in Europe and some other ones. But train somewhere else as well, but also get as much clinical training as you can. Yeah, you need to learn some imaging too, but I mentioned what you need, I think. You don't need nuclear medicine or uh, ultrasound is very helpful for directing uh, needles. A lot of that you pick up along the way uh, with experience. So uh, I would try to minimize the amount of diagnosis. I'd still probably at this point today start out doing IR through uh, radiology. Now, is that going to be the case in the future? I mean, China already has separated IR into a separate specialty. It, it, there's medicine, surgery, and IR, uh, and they have equal stature, and, and each one of those has their own clinical service and might be 50 or 100 beds uh, in a hospital. I think eventually we're heading in that direction. Eventually, it's likely that um, neurosurgeons are uh, going to be training other neurosurgeons and vascular surgeons, training other vascular surgeons and vascular. But uh, the people that are trained by vascular surgeons are not going to know how to do a fallopian tube uh, catheterization, recanalization, or uh, uh, biliary drainage, and you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so again, I, I like the idea of collaboration. Uh, and this is all in flux. I have no idea where the training will be 10, 15 years from now. In the near term, I think it makes the most sense to do it through radiology, but get the minimum amount of diagnosis, and I just mentioned the areas that I think are important. Well, Dr. Kumpy, thank you so much. I don't want to take any more of your time, but it's really been an honor to have you. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Good questions.